Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. I've had the opportunity to meet some extremely talented and inspiring people throughout my career. That's one of the reasons why I created this podcast. I believe their voices should be heard and also preserved, so this platform is a wonderful conduit that allows me to do that. My guest today is one of those individuals. He is an accomplished helicopter pilot who is serving with the Royal Canadian Air Force. He has amassed over 6,200 flight hours, 5,200 of which is with the Air Force. I first met Troy Ma a number of years ago when he was flying the CH-149 Cormorant Search and Rescue Helicopter at 442 Squadron, which is stationed at Canadian Forces Base Comox in British Columbia. 442 Squadron is a composite unit which until recently operated both the Cormorant and the Buffalo aircraft in the search and rescue role. Troy was a major and a senior pilot on the squadron, and as a flight commander, he was focused on operations and operational training for the Cormorant. Not only was that his role, but he was passionate about it, and it was that passion that left a strong impression on me. And that is one of the reasons why I asked him to be a guest here on Go Bold. After his time on the Cormorant, Troy transitioned to the reserves, where he assumed the rank of captain, which allowed him the opportunity to return to his first operational platform, the CH-124 Sea King anti-submarine warfare helicopter. After flying the Sea King, Troy went to the civil side of aviation, where he flew the Sikorsky S-92 in the search and rescue role. It is important to note here that Canada has retired the Sea King, but I wanted to discuss both platforms with Troy as a way to learn and contrast their capabilities, and also to preserve stories about them. During our chat, you'll hear us refer to the Buffalo fixed-wing search and rescue aircraft, which was part of 442 Squadron. The Buffalo has recently been retired, and its fixed-wing search-and-rescue role has been taken up by the CC-130 Hercules as an interim solution until the dedicated CC-295 Kingfisher fixed-wing search-and-rescue aircraft comes online. So I have another interesting side note here. Although the Sea King helicopter is an older platform, it is still relevant today. The United Kingdom recently transferred some of their retired Sea Kings to Ukraine, where they will be operated by the Ukrainian forces for search and rescue and utility roles. So even as surplus equipment, the Sea King continues its long and storied service. I'm happy to share that Troy is now back on active duty with the Royal Canadian Air Force, and he is flying the new CH-148 Cyclone anti-submarine warfare helicopter. We will discuss that aircraft in another episode of Go Bold, but for now, I hope you enjoy this episode where we focus on Troy's career flying the Seeking and the Cormorant helicopters. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge our sponsor, Cubic Mission and Performance Solutions. Cubic is a highly diversified company and is a leading provider of live, virtual, constructive, and game-based training solutions for allied forces. Cubic's training solutions include SPEAR, the next generation of multi-domain training which is helping operators spend more time reviewing why things happened instead of just what happened. We are thankful that Cubic supports our efforts of sharing stories from warfighters and leaders from around the world. 
In doing so, we are preserving history through first-hand accounts like you will hear today, so we are proud to have Cubic as a teammate to go bold. To learn more about Cubic and their amazing capabilities, please visit them at cubic.com. Now, let's cue the music. Good day, everybody. I'm your host, Jody Atariwala. So this episode is part of our Stories from the Cockpit series, and today we are focusing on the Royal Canadian Air Force CH-124 Sea King helicopter and the CH-149 Cormorant search and rescue helicopter. The Cormorant is a variant of the Leonardo AW-101, commonly known as the Merlin. If you've ever had the opportunity to see a Cormorant operating up close, you'll certainly come away with the memory of a distinctive sound coming from its composite blades. I call it the Cormorant whistle, and it sounds like this. I'm thrilled to say that we have on the line today a seasoned Sea King and Cormorant pilot as a guest for this episode. He's a veteran of the Royal Canadian Air Force, he's a highly respected pilot, and he's done tours flying off the back end of frigates and destroyers in the Sea King Maritime Helicopter, which is focused on anti-submarine warfare, and he's flown the Cormorant as an operational pilot and flight commander at 442 Squadron at CFB Comox on Vancouver Island. So needless to say, he has an in-depth perspective on both of these helicopters. So without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Captain Troy Ma. Hey, thanks for having me, Jody. It's great to have you on on the line. So Troy, you've flown both the Sea King and the Cormorant helicopters uh, with the Royal Canadian Air Force. It would be neat to get a sense of what it was like to fly both. And maybe during this conversation, we can kind of reference both because you might have some unique insight that others wouldn't. And I have to say, before before we continue, I feel like calling you Major Ma, but I know it's Captain now. So maybe you might want to just explain that a little bit. Yeah. Well, when we met, um, I was working in Comox as the uh, Cormorant Flight Commander. Uh, and I was kind of between jobs. Um, I was transitioning to a job in Victoria as the uh, as the fleet air officer. Um, so uh, things being what they were, they they posted me in um, March, around the end of March time frame. And then to do the handover, I sailed on the Algonquin with you during Joint X. So I was doing the handover as the fleet air officer while still working as the as the uh, Cormorant flight commander. And then uh, I took over the uh, the fleet air officer job uh, in the summer of uh, 2013. And um, uh, I retired from the reg force though in the summer of 2016. And then of course, uh, uh, started flying the Sea King again um, as a captain, uh, just because the or the reserve force job uh, was a captain position as opposed to a major's position. Uh, so I was back on the line as a, as a line pilot, um, kind of doing the uh, deployment thing again. Okay. All right. So I guess it's uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a hit in any other way other than just the fact that as a reserve it was a it was a captain spot. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, because it was a captain's position, I had to relinquish my rank. Right. Right. I totally <clears throat> understand. Um, so I guess the best way to start is, um, you know, what prompted you to join the military? 
you know, I think it was a combination of things. Um, as a as a young boy, of course, uh, helicopters and, and aviation were uh, something I was interested in. And, you know, that interest sort of continued all, all through my teen years and uh, into early adulthood, I suppose, and uh, well, into this day, actually. So there was that. And uh, not to mention, you know, I joined under what's called the regular officer training plan, uh, where the military pays for you to go to school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they'll cover the cost of your, your university. Uh, and in exchange, you owe them some time uh, for the time that they pay for your school. So uh, in my case, uh, I joined in the summer of 1994. And um during that same year, they closed Royal Roads and they closed uh, CMR in, in Quebec. Uh, so they moved all of those students to Kingston, to uh, the Royal Military College there. And um, there were a number of us, I believe, that, uh, that you know, might have gone to RMC, but uh, because it was full, they ended up sending us to uh, civilian universities. Oh. So uh, I myself went to uh, McMaster University. I did a mechanical engineering degree there. So during the regular school year, I would go to school, and then in the summers, I would train with the uh, with the military. Uh, and then after graduation, I owed them some time and trained to become a pilot. I was planning to serve anyway, so it didn't really matter. Yeah, yeah, right on. And it was, was the goal always to – to it, clearly, it was always to fly. It wasn't just to be in the, the armed forces, but you wanted specifically to fly. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Um I think right right from the outset, I pretty much knew that I wanted to be a, a helicopter pilot, uh, and more specifically, a search and rescue pilot, mainly because uh, I liked the idea that it helped out people, you know. And uh, and I think as a, as a young boy, I, I like I like the idea that helicopters could hover. Uh, I liked the way that they could move laterally. That the the jobs that they did, it seemed like they were the workhorses of the air force, and they they did the jobs that uh, most appealed to me. Right. And perhaps for some of our listeners who are unaware, in Canada, it's the Air Force that has all of the airborne assets, whereas like in the US, there's, you know, the Army has a a huge aviation component, but uh, that's not the case here. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Pretty much anything that flies belongs to the Air Force and the Canadian Forces. Yeah, yeah, right on. And so you could have gone tactical uh, aviation in terms of like the, the Griffin um, I don't know if we still had the the Chinook at the time, but um, but you mentioned that you wanted to go search and rescue specifically. Yeah, so um, around the time that I got my wings, so I did. I graduated in the summer of 1998, and um, I had to go to Saint Jean, Quebec, to do some French language training, and um, and then from there ended up in Moose Jaw uh, doing OJT. Mm-hmm. And just on the job training, helping refuel the tutor and things like that, doing servicing work mm-hmm. uh, while I waited for my for my moose jaw course. And um, so I trained on the tutor uh, in moose jaw, and that took me from oh ninety nine to early two thousand. Okay. And then uh, from there, I right away actually got onto a helicopter course in Porters of Prairie. Uh, so that would have been around the spring of uh, 2000, and I got my wings in uh, the summer of 2000. Fantastic. Um, and, of course, at the, at the time, um, 2000 was the year that we got the Cormorant helicopters. Right. right. And um, generally, when you finish your course, you have a, you have a choice. You get to choose between uh, search and rescue, the Army, or, or the Navy, the maritime helicopter. Mm-hmm. And... Um, depending on what's available and what your choices are and how well you finish on the course, 
you know, you kind of sometimes get your choice and sometimes you don't. Right. Uh, in my particular case, they they had just got Cormorant helicopters, so they were training a lot of the uh, a lot of the old guard on how to fly the the new machine. So they weren't taking brand new guys. Ah. And uh, so my choice was green or gray. They said. And, right. Uh, and I said, well, send me west. I said because that's where my wife is from. <laughs> right. <laughs> Smart move. <laughs> no offense so, to the East Coast guys, but <laughs> we are. Yeah. <laughs> well, and and so so you went. Uh, uh, you went to the Navy side and so ended up flying Sea Kings. Um, how, what did you think of the Sea King? And, and I guess when you were at Portage La Prairie and flying, you know, learning to fly helicopters, I guess I was on the Jet Ranger? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I was on the 206. And, uh, you know, I, I really, I really, really liked flying the 206. Um, the, the hands on, the feel of it, um, it's, uh, it takes a little bit of getting used to, mm-hmm. but, I'd often tell, I taught there my second tour, and um, I'd often tell my students, you're, you're kind of in a, a zen state when you're, when you're sitting in the hover because you're, you're not looking at anything in particular, but you see everything and you just sort of take it all in and your hands and feet kind of automatically know what to do to keep you in that one position. And, um, and I found with flying the Jet Ranger, it was just so nimble and so responsive. Uh, and it required such a light touch. It was just, it was a real relaxing feeling to to fly that machine. Uh, and then going on to the the Sea King, of course, the Sea King's this this lumbering bus. And um, <laughs> you know, the first time I took off in a Sea King, I thought, oh my goodness, what is this piece of junk? You know, right? But uh, but you know, it, it's it was just simply because I wasn't used to it. Sure. Sure. Um, and like anything, once you once you get used to how it controls and how to how to make it do the things that you want it to do, mm-hmm. it's actually a great machine to fly. Um, you know, I'm I'm confident that uh, if Canada had chosen to simply upgrade the Sea Kings that we had, uh, we would have a, a great and a, and a relevant machine right now, as opposed to you know moving on to something like the Cyclone. Well, I tell you, you know, I've I've had the the privilege, or I guess the fortune, to fly uh, in a Sea King, and uh, it was it was a fantastic uh, opportunity, and and I've had the fortune to go up a number of times in in, in a Sea King, and I can totally appreciate what you're saying about the difference between a Jet Ranger because it's so much smaller and nimbler. And, but, you know, once you get the seeking going, it's not, it's, it's not, uh, I guess it's just a matter of getting used to it, but it's, uh, it's certainly, uh, a, a fantastic aircraft that's been used all over the world. Oh, sure. I mean, you just look at, you just look at its history and, and you can see, you know, that a lesser machine would not have that same colored history. You know, it, it's done so much in, in so many different environments yeah. and so many different roles um you know canada just sort of scratches the surface of, of what it can and what it has done yeah and um, and we operated it for 50 years plus that's right that's right yeah. and you know you from a maritime helicopter perspective you employed it as a uh, anti-submarine warfare asset that's right yeah we did we did and uh and you know when when i first started flying it um uh we had mark one two and three versions um so you know, upgraded, uh, well, basic, the, the first generation engines and transmissions and then upgraded transmissions and finally upgraded engines and transmissions. And, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it was, it was a step ahead again, 
you know, going from a Mark One to a Mark Three, it just had that much more power and that much more capability and that much more safety built into it, you know, because of those uh, um, added performance numbers. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, flying it, uh, flying it out over the ocean. When I first started flying it, we didn't have night vision goggles, so that was, you know, kind of a spooky. A spooky regime to be flying in because you take off from the ship and then it's just complete blackness out over the ocean you know you're you're down at 150 feet over the water and your whole world is is that instrument panel um and you know we didn't have a uh, we didn't have a rad alt hold that we flew on that we flew around on uh, we, we flew on the barometric altitude hold so okay um, you know every time you got a gust of wind or or you you know you weren't quite trimmed off in the turn the uh, the collective would want to would put a download on to try and push you down into the water so you had to really be on top of it wow. um so it, it it required a little bit of uh, a little bit of getting used to and uh, but like anything once you once you got accustomed to it uh, it really wasn't all that bad i mean we had a we had an automatic transition to the hover feature mm-hmm. and that pretty much remained the same all the way through its life uh, and it worked sometimes and sometimes it didn't work but you you kind of got used to, you know, what would happen or, or what to expect when, uh, you know, you get to a regime where you're engaging the, we called it the coupler, but mm-hmm. you would engage the coupler to, to transition down to the hover. And uh, there would be points where maybe it would start to hang up a little bit and, and you're closely watching the, the airspeed and the altitude. Mm-hmm. And um, so if, you know, you started to hang up at a particular altitude, Mm-hmm. In the back of your mind, as you got more experienced, you're like you, you start thinking, well, I expect that it's going to want to skyrocket down here, so I'm going to either have to abort this transition or I'm going to have to control it somehow. And so, you you just sort of got used to actually to actually how to how to manipulate the machine and make it work for you. Yeah, yeah. In hearing you describe some of these things about the Sea King, it makes me think that there were some unique aspects to Canada that, you know, we innovated and that the rest of the world seemed to adopt, like the bear trap mechanism, I think was a Canadian design or innovation. That's right. Yes. Yeah, it was. Uh, my history is not the best, but certainly it was something that um, that Canada was on one of the front runners for sure for, for putting that together. Um, and, you know, I've heard stories about uh, people in Shearwater uh, with ropes and pulleys um, just on shore attached to the bottom of the helicopter trying to mimic how this thing might work on a ship and um, so you know right from day one there there were a lot of great minds uh, trying to make it all work here yeah yeah it's a, it's a great history and, and a great story if you don't mind indulge me in talking about flying off the back end of a ship because numerous navies or air forces operate aircraft off the back end of, of warships or coast guard cutters or what have you but I think the number drops significantly when talking about operating off the back end of a ship at nighttime, and certainly Canada was is one of the one of the few that does. Um, yeah, I don't know what the stats would be for folks who operate at night. Certainly, um, a lot of the nations that I've deployed with uh, and other ships that I've landed on, uh, we we can land on their ships at night, and they do operate at night. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can say that. You know, landing on the back of a ship is is like learning to hover all over again. Hmm. Um, when you you know when you when you're taught and when you teach somebody how to hover, you you pick a fixed reference position in front of them, and then one sort of out on the horizon, and you and you kind of line the two up, 
And as long as those two stay stationary relative to each other, mm-hmm. you know that the helicopter's not moving. Right. Uh, but then all of a sudden you take those references and now your near reference is now moving and your far reference, which is the horizon, well, there's no actual point on the horizon that you can choose because it's just one flat line out over the ocean. Right. So your your references are all changed. Uh, so learning to hover over a ship and land on a ship, it's like learning to fly all over again. But we have uh, we have tools. They have artificial horizon bars on tops of the ship, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, those help. Uh, there's a an artificial pitch bar as well on top of the ship, a pitch indicator on top of the ship. That's how you when the pitch is, uh, ship is pitching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, you've got an experienced person sitting next to you, uh, some usually a high-time aircraft captain that uh, – you know, in a, in a calm voice, is just kind of telling you to keep looking out at the horizon, don't move the controls. You know, all the all the good motherhood type things that uh, you know that you teach people when when you're learning to or when you're teaching them to hover. And um, eventually, it all just sort of clicks together. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you you don't land on the ship when it's when it's pitching and rolling. You you wait for it uh, a steady period, and when you get that steady period, you lower it down to the down to the low hover, and then the LSO will calm you over the trap and you land, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's a uh, sort of well-choreographed dance, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and it really is a thing of beauty when it all clicks, you know, especially on a, on a really nasty day when the ship is bouncing around and you get everything, get that helicopter on the deck safely. So then that kind of begs the question that if you get into a state where, you know, the ship is pitching and rolling a lot and you don't find that kind of calm period or or moment where you can set it down, um, I'm setting up a question for you to talk about Heifer because I think Heifer is kind sure. of a neat thing. Yeah, I think, um, you know, if if the deck's not fouled, you'll always have that, that lull, that the... In any sea state, you'll, you'll have sort of a period where it's just a... You know, they call it a quiescent or a mm-hmm. just a, a calm state. You know, it might be pretty brief. Okay. Uh, but there will always be sort of that brief point where the ship isn't moving all that much, and you've got to you got to get used to that and, and time it. You know, but uh, but certainly if the deck is fouled, mm-hmm. or um, you know, if you find yourself in a situation where, oh, I don't know, you're you're prosecuting a mission of some kind, and and uh, you're far away from your mom, your, your parent ship, mm-hmm. uh, but you're next to uh, another ship in your task group, but their their helicopter happens to be on the deck or, or something like that. Um, certainly in those situations, yeah, you can get into a hyper situation. So we uh, it basically, we, we hoist up the fuel hose mm-hmm. and attach it to the side of the helicopter and we can, we can fuel while we're hovering beside the ship. It is the coolest thing to see. I've been on the ship watching that evolution and, you know, you just think, wow, that's who would have, who would have guessed? Like, I mean, you know, you hear about air to air refueling an aircraft, but you know, here's like a hovering helicopter fueling up from a ship. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh well, I mean, it's a great capability. I mean, uh, you can imagine that, uh, you know, it could be, it could be something like a ship that we just don't fit on, uh, you know, a, a ship that we're traveling with um, and for whatever reason, and the helicopter doesn't fit on their deck, mm-hmm. um, we could still use them to to get fuel uh, and then extend our range, you know? Yeah. Uh, fascinating. What would a typical um, 
let's say an ASW, anti-submarine warfare mission look like? You know, you'd launch from your ship and how long would you typically be out and prosecuting that mission? Um, well, it would all sort of depend on, on what is going on and what, you know, what the intelligence has told us is going to be happening. You know, you can read in just about any sort of anti-submarine uh, documentation, the, you know, the role of the helicopter is essentially to be out there to deny the enemy the use of their submarines. Mm-hmm. Um, you could be out there lowering the sonar into the water and, let's say, insonifying the, the water space in front of the ship mm-hmm. or in front of the convoy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, just making noise in the water might be enough to scare an enemy submarine away right? Uh, for fear of being contacted. So all that to say, the, the, the ASW trips can be pretty boring sometimes <laughs> because you could be out there... You could be out there dipping, you know, a number of times and, and uh, however many number of times and, and never actually gain contact with anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, essentially you, you probably or you may or may not have done your job. You just you don't really even know. That's that's kind of part of the cat and mouse game, you know. Uh, but we could be, you know, if in a, in a heightened theater, mm-hmm. uh, there could be a time where we're on an alert status, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, if... Um, if the uh, ships or somebody that we're traveling with gets contact on on their sonar or on the ship sonar or on a, another, perhaps another helicopter with us makes contact, mm-hmm. um, they could launch us in a hurry uh, off the back of the ship to go and help prosecute. Really, all depends on on what's actually happening at the time. Right. Um, any any time your ship is out there, you're in that sort of you're sort of a sitting duck to a submarine, I think. Right. Um, if they were ill-intentioned. Sure. Um, but the trick is trying to figure out what they're up to, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, sometimes they could just be out there collecting intelligence data, you know, maybe recording sounds that your ships make and things like that and if they're out there and they're collecting that kind of stuff well that might be something that canada doesn't want enemy submarines to know so perhaps they would launch us to chase them away if they suspected they would be out there Mm -hmm. um so it could be something fairly benign but you know just intelligence gathering and and uh you don't want them around Mm -hmm. so if they send us out to make noise in the water and scare enemy submarines away then then we've done our job too yeah um so it's not always just a going about going out there and trying to to sink a, a submarine you know right but obviously that's part of the capability because the helicopters are you know the main armament is is a torpedo absolutely that's right yeah yeah how was that from a sea king uh, you know it's pretty benign is it <laughs> from my from my perspective uh, you know they they put a 500 pound weight on the side of the helicopter and um you know the the tactical officer will set up the the firing solution and he'll say drop now 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 and you push the button and away it goes and you don't really notice much up front <laughs> and <laughs> um, I, I i don't know because you know i i'm not a, i was never a sea king pilot but um would you actually even see the torpedo when you when no, you pickle it no yeah. it's it's yeah. behind you right that's what i thought um, yeah. so you know, it's it's like I said, it's pretty anticlimactic, but uh, yeah, we, there there's a range. Uh, you know, the uh, we have an under underwater range uh, up in Nanus, mm-hmm. and uh, we go up there to practice. And yeah, so we're up there. We're up there fairly regularly. Yeah, yeah, and I would imagine that employing a torpedo, you could be either in the hover or you could be forward traveling or or what have you. 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's uh yeah, it's it's a neat mission and uh and you know, the Sea King's done it for so many years. It was uh it was lovely to be at the at the sunset ceremony here and to see the aircraft flying around for for the I guess the last time, but uh what a what a great what a great history. Yeah, I got to I got to fly as part of that four ship. It was uh it was a great day. Really nice day. Yeah. Yeah, well, fantastic. I, yeah. uh, I, I know I've got pictures of you flying it, so <laughs> we'll, we'll, I'll have to get some of those over to you. True, thank you. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting that you said, you know, we could upgrade the Sea King. We could have upgraded the Sea King and it would have been, you know, just fine. And and for sure, sure you know, you throw enough sure. money into something. Like, I, I always remember people saying, oh, that thing keeps crashing. You know, I'm not, I'm, I would never fly in a Sea King. I'm like, man, give me a ticket. I'll go anytime, you know, because oh, because a pilot's not going to go up in a plane that he's not secure in or, you know, not comfortable. Well, no, and, and that's it. I mean, the, the beauty of it is that, the thing's been around forever. If something were to go wrong, everybody knows what's happening with it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's got a phenomenal track record, and yeah. statistically speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, they, they sensationalize the yes some yeah. stuff. But. Yeah. Yeah. So now you do your tour in the Sea King, and then what transpired to allow you to move over to the Cormorant community? Uh, well, like I said, the, um, you know, search and rescue is one of those jobs that I, or the job that I felt like I, I wanted to do right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I didn't, I didn't get the opportunity to do it right away. Mm -hmm. Um, so generally after you do your first operational tour, you'll go to a school. So you may go from, uh, one of the operational seeking squadrons to the operational training unit. So that would be 406. Okay. Or you'd go to, um, to the basic helicopter school, or you might go back to Moose Jaw and, and start teaching on, uh, well, what's the Harvard there now? Right. Um, so for me, I, I uh, like I said, I really liked flying the Jet Ranger as a student. Um, and I enjoyed the atmosphere there as a student. And I thought, this seems like something that I want to be a part of it at some point. So uh, when I finished my tour, uh, my first tour on Sea Kings in Victoria, I asked to go to Porters of Prairie to teach on the Jet Ranger. Okay. Um, so I got to do that for uh, for about three years. Yeah. And then, as luck would have it, they posted me to Comox to fly search and rescue in the uh, would have been the summer of 2013. Fantastic. Sorry, 2009. I'm sorry. Gotcha. So, how does flying in the search and rescue community differ from other flying units in the in the Air Force? And obviously, we're referencing helicopter units here. Um, well, you know, the biggest thing that uh, the, the biggest difference that comes to mind right away is the fact that uh, at the search and rescue unit, you're operational 24-7. You know, it's a no-fail operation. There, there isn't a day that goes by where you don't have somebody on standby right. manning that helicopter. Mm -hmm. uh, so during my time there, you would generally have a day crew and a night crew. Okay. And uh, so our call, our, our Normal mandate was uh, during the week, Monday to Friday, between 8 and 4 o'clock, we had a 30-minute call-out. And then uh, from 4 o'clock until 8 the next day, it was a two-hour call-out and a two-hour call-out on the weekends. So that meant that during the day, we would have a crew in the hangar ready to go and respond within 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And then in the evening, we would have our crew designated at home that would be ready to respond within two hours. And that was the same on the weekend. During my time there, there was some discussion about whether that served Canada's people the way that we wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, 
you know, it it made more sense to have a better response time on the weekends because that's when we would get a lot of our calls during the summertime, for, for instance. Sure, yeah. And um, so Canada's mandate uh, for search and rescue is pretty much anything that floats or flies. So, uh, you know, a lost hiker or snowmobiler, uh, something like that would be considered a humanitarian case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's more of a provincial jurisdiction. Okay. But federally, you know, if there was a, uh, you know, a ship in trouble or a, a pleasure craft even, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, an aircraft that went down, and that would all be a federal mandate. And, uh, you know, you can imagine recreationally, people are out on their boats on the weekend, probably a little bit more during the summer and perhaps out taking advantage of the nice weather, you know, flying around in their little Cessnas or something like that. So there was uh, more of a demand, I think, for us to be on call on the weekends. So I think I think they've changed their call-out times now mm-hmm. um, to be 30 minutes on the weekend and maybe maybe two hours during the week. I don't know exactly what the times are now, but uh, sure. that, was, that was one of those one of those projects that was going on sort of in the background during my time there. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes sense. You know, in theory, you have a lot more people out on the weekend doing stuff. So mm-hmm. um, that provincial uh, mandate for like the lost hiker or what have you, um, that could also be passed over to you guys if JRCC chose to accept it, I, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Um, a lot of times what would happen is that, um, you know, sometimes something would come up that's just sort of beyond the capability of what the provincial assets have. You know, I can think of uh, one particular day when we were, um, I don't think we were out training yet. I think we got the call at the squadron, but uh, we picked up some kayakers who had started to kayak down the Hamathco River um, and they were going to end up in Campbell River. Uh, so the Hamathco River starts sort of, uh, you know, northern central BC. Okay. Um, I think it's Tatla Lake. And uh, so they put their kayaks in at the lake, and then they were kayaking down. But the, the canyon where the Hamathco River runs, it, it gets quite quite deep in certain spots. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess these guys got to a section of rapids that they couldn't negotiate, uh, and they were stranded. So um, so they operated their, their spot beacon. Uh, which is just a you know a distress signal that they can activate that sends a signal to a satellite and then then that gets picked up by the rescue center and they can assign a an asset to go and have a look. Okay. And um, what happened in this particular case is the provincial helicopter went out to have a look, and uh, the canyon was quite quite deep, so they weren't able to actually hoist these guys out. So we went in and and I mean the cormorant had. You know, it has two hoists with each with 290 feet of cable on it. So, I don't know how long a long line can be on a on a, a civilian helicopter or a, or a provincial helicopter that might do something like that. But I'd argue a 300 foot long line is pretty long. Right. Um, I'm guessing they're more in the neighborhood of 100 feet. So, at any rate, this this canyon was kind of too deep for them to to go and pick these people up. So we got called out to do that. Neat. Well, that leads me perfectly into the next question, which is to say that, you know, the Cormorant is categorized as a medium lift helicopter. Um, so how would you describe it to our listeners? And if you have any exposure to other SAR helicopters, um, maybe you could describe it in comparison. But how would you describe the Cormorant to somebody who is not familiar with the machine? 
Um, well, size-wise, it's it's virtually the same size as a uh, Sea King helicopter. I think the uh, Sea King footprint rotating was 72 feet 7 inches. Mm-hmm. And uh, I want to say that the Cormorant was something like 72 feet 4 inches. It's, it was very close. Hmm. Um, the cabin is bigger mm-hmm. than the, the Cormorant. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, of course, the Cormorant's got the, the three engines on it. So power to spare, you know, just, just lots of power. I think the all-up weight of the Sea King was uh, roughly 10 tons, um, so 20,000 pounds. Mm-hmm. And uh, the uh, Cormorant was 14,600 kilograms, hmm. so closer to 33,000 pounds. Right. And during my time there, there was actually a project in place to increase the all-up weight on the Cormorant to 15,600 uh, because a lot of other nations are operating it at that weight. Okay. Um for whatever reason, maybe life uh, cycle management or time on components, something like that. Uh, Canada chose to operate it at a at a lower weight. Right. But um, at any rate, you know, it was a fantastic machine. The uh, having that third engine is just it's just such a luxury. Um, you know, on any given day, you would pick the aircraft up into the hover, and uh, you'd check your numbers like you do on you know on any aircraft, uh, any any helicopter you fly in general. Mm-hmm. And the flight engineer would brief us that, you know, our hover torque is whatever. And then we, he would brief an equivalent torque, which would be if we were to lose one engine, what our expected torque would be on only two engines. Hmm. And, um, you know, most times he would brief the equivalent torque and you'd think in the back of your mind, okay, well, if we lose one engine, nothing's going to happen. Right. You know, we're just going to sit here and we'll see the torque numbers come up. And we'll see our engine uh, that failed would show up on our our displays. But uh, other than that, the aircraft would still fly like it should and we could land it safely. And so it's just having that in your back pocket was just such such a luxury, such a reassurance. Yeah. The machine has got, um, you know, the rotor de-icing capability, which was a real game changer, you know, flying around IFR in in BC especially. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, you, you have to get up so high to avoid all of the big mountains that you're inevitably flying up above the freezing level. Uh, you know, it's it's quite a bit different than flying, let's say, offshore over the ocean somewhere where you're flying around at 150 feet over the water and you're you're well below the clouds and it might be cold, but you can stay below the clouds and you don't have to worry about collecting ice necessarily, right? Right. Having that rotor de-ice capability is huge. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And uh, obviously the previous aircraft that the Cormorant replaced, the Labrador, would not have had that. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know if the Sea King had it either. I don't think so. No, the Sea King didn't. I, I, yeah. I think they did trials at one time on it, mm-hmm. but uh, that was before my time. I don't know what ever came of it. Right, right. So for purposes of comparison, um, maybe you could describe the difference between like a Sea King cockpit and uh, the cockpit of the Cormorant. Uh, yeah, for sure. So the Cormorant would have uh, six screens, uh, so glass cockpit, first of all. Mm-hmm. So you'd have two in front of the left seat pilot, two in front of the right seat pilot, one above each other. Mm-hmm. And then you have sort of two in the middle that would be generally would be your, your engine instruments. Okay. Uh, so all of your all of your flight data and your nav data would be on each side. Um, generally, the same information, mm-hmm. and uh, in the middle, like I said, would be your your engine and fuel data. And um, you know the information could be manipulated such that if one screen failed, 
you could have it all displayed on a on another screen. Um, so you had sort of a composite mode where it would display sort of overlap. Uh, let's say your your nav display as well as your your primary flight display. Okay. Um, or perhaps your fuel and your engine inf information, uh, which would normally be separate. Right. We didn't have a true FMS in uh, the Cormorant. We had a communications control unit, a CCU. Okay. Uh, so it was much like an FMS, though. Mm -hmm. um, you could program flight plans into it. You could uh, program search patterns into it. Um, we didn't use it for approaches. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's in, in that vein, uh, we didn't quite use it like we would an FMS, but uh, we did have a little Garmin uh, 530 um, and we would had we had GPS approach capability. So it was it was definitely a step above. And of course, everything was you know, we had a fully coupled autopilot. So you could couple to the GPS, you could couple to the nav solution for your search pattern. Uh, you could couple to a VOR for your approach or to a, an ILS for your approach, mm -hmm. uh, as well as you could just simply, you know, control the heading by manipulating a bug um, or uh, the altitude would be coupled to your, your collective. So you could control the altitude by trimming up and down and uh, same with your, your airspeed. You could control your airspeed by simply trimming the pitch forward or back. Hmm. So, uh, you know, all in all, a very capable, great machine to fly. It, it was ideal because you could set things up well ahead of time. Mm -hmm. and, um, and if you were, you know, heading somewhere to prosecute a mission, you could have everything all sort of trimmed off and organized. And it could be more or less self-navigating all the way to your destination. And that gave you time to to plan and, and figure out what you're going to do when you get there. Right. And then, of course, once you got there, you had all the power to spare that you needed, lots of room in the back for the guys to work. You had the two hoists. You had a comm suite, a capable comm suite with, uh, you know, with a satellite telephone mm -hmm. um, so that you could talk to whoever you needed to speak with. Mm -hmm. um, and then once you had your patient on board, uh, you know, you had the ability to get a hold of air traffic control and get back up into the IFR environment, perhaps, and then get yourself back home and get this person to where they needed to go. Neat. Um, so it was it was just, a, you know, a great amalgamation of, of everything that we needed. Right. And obviously the comparison to the Sea King, so Sea King had uh, steam gauges, didn't even have a glass cockpit. It did, yeah. So, I mean, it, it required a whole lot more... Um, a whole lot more attention <laughs> when you're flying. Right. Um, you know, the, the first of all, if you did have to take off and go into the IFR environment, you didn't have the same capability to, to couple up to things when you're flying. So, you you know, you definitely the guy flying had to be on the ball and, and making sure he's tracking uh, and flying the aircraft the way that it needs to be flown. And, uh, of course, it's all... It's all hand flown, so his attention would be taken away from whatever it is that you're trying to plan. So uh, it was definitely more challenging from that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, and then getting down out of the IFR environment, you didn't have. Uh, I mean, you still had you still had a VOR and you still have an ILS and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But certainly the the communications are not as robust on the Sea King. They're mm -hmm. just tired. Sure. Uh, in a lot of cases, for instance, we'd only have one AM radio. So, uh, so sometimes trying to get a hold of somebody or find out where folks are that you need to to help 
um, it could be a challenge. Uh, and if the data that you're given is old data, uh, you know, you may have to, you may have to just sort of work around it. For instance, you know, you might have to make radio calls up at altitude before you descend so that you can pre-plan things. Yeah. And then once you get down out of it, I mean, again, it, it was capable, uh, not really the same as the Cormoran in terms of the, the hoist capability. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think the Sea King's only got 100 feet of, of hoist cable on it. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a hydraulic hoist, so it's slower. Oh. So, you know, a lot of times uh, things that you could do with a Cormoran, you know, out in BC, you're hoisting over maybe 150, 200 foot trees sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, you couldn't do that in a Sea King, you know, so you'd have to... You'd have to have a better plan in place maybe before you got there. Right. And kind of figure out where you could put that that helicopter down if you wanted to pick somebody up or something. Sure. Or sure. at least get into a lower hover. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, it, you know, it's just it's just a generational difference, really. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said earlier, there's no doubt in my mind that we could have upgraded the Sea King and and had a very capable machine again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and clearly, you know, nations are still operating it today, so. For sure. Yeah. Hey, everyone. I'd like to share a few words about our sponsor, IMP Aerospace and Defense. IMP is a leading in-service support provider for military and civilian aircraft. The company is instrumental in supporting the Royal Canadian Air Force deploy the Cormorant Search and Rescue Helicopter across Canada. IMP provides total in-service support of the aircraft. So short of flying the aircraft and jumping out the back of it, almost every other aspect of supporting this no-fail search and rescue capability is the responsibility of IMP Aerospace and Defense. The story doesn't end there, though. Many are unaware that IMP Aerospace and Defense is one of the only third-party maintainers of the AW-101 helicopter in the world. As recognized at the International AW-101 User Group, Canada has higher fleet availability than anyone else in the world by a strong margin, and less than half the maintenance hours per flying hour of the next nearest competitor. So there is no argument that IMP Aerospace and Defense is providing value for money. As Canada's in-service support provider for the Cormorant over the past 22 years, IMP is uniquely positioned to maintain the rotary wing SAR capability throughout the transition to the Cormorant midlife upgrade fleet. That makes IMP the only choice from a risk management perspective to continue supporting the Cormorant fleet going forward. To learn more about them, please visit impaerospaceanddefense.com. And that's defense with a C. Now let's get back to our chat with Troy. So if we were to focus again specifically on the Cormorant, so you kind of described the front end and the cockpit and and the capabilities of of the machine from a pilot's perspective, but maybe you could just give a bit of a a flavor for the back, uh, the cabin. And um, because when I've flown in the Cormorant, there's a lot of equipment back there because I guess the contingencies that you guys have to plan for, it's, and correct me where I'm wrong, but I don't think that you're removing things or adding things to the aircraft, depending on what type of call you get. You have it all configured for any eventuality, I would assume. Uh, well, on a, on a day-to-day basis, um, yes, we'll have, we'll have stuff on there for pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. 
there are bits and pieces that we can add. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there have been times when I myself have, have asked the guys to remove stuff knowing that we won't need them because we're worried about weight or, or something like that. But, you know, you come into the back end of the cormorant and it's a ramp entrance. Mm-hmm. And immediately to your left and right, there will be uh, shelving where generally the crew will put their, their overnight bags. Um, so they have those strapped in there and, you know, just a duffel bag with some clothes and a toothbrush in it so that if you get stuck somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, you've got it. And then uh, as you move forward, uh, you'll have space for you know, stretchers on one side. Um, on the other side, you'll have, uh, you know, the rescue gear, like maybe the Stokes litter and, or the basket. Mm-hmm. Continuing forward, there'll be space for another stretcher on the left-hand side, and then there's a shelving unit uh, in front of the cargo door that houses a lot of uh, a lot of the gear that uh, the guys would use, the Sartex would use. Um, there's actually a, a lockable cabinet in there where we would store night vision goggles or um, or pharmaceuticals and things that uh, things that the guys have to lock up. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you know that would bring you right into the cockpit. One of the biggest challenges that the guys would have is is the you know the mess of intercom wires <laughs> running all around all around the cabin as they're trying to work. Right, and that's with uh, that's with a crew complement. So you have in the front obviously a, a a pilot and a first officer or a mission commander and a and a first officer, I guess. That's right. And then uh, and then in the back end would be how many people? Typically. Uh, generally, have two Sartex and a flight engineer. Okay, and for those people who don't know, describe who Sartex are and what they do. <laughs> I call them um, I call them paramedics on steroids. <laughs> they uh, they're they're essentially a paramedic, but they do everything. Um, you know, they jump out of airplanes, they mountain climb, they scuba dive. They're the poor souls down there on the hoist that uh, you know are hanging out on some rocky ledge trying to play nursemaid to somebody who's fallen down a cliff. You know, <laughs> wow. So, uh, so yeah, they're, they're the guys that, you know, have to, they have to do the, the dirty work, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course they're the unfortunate souls that have to go down and sometimes find the people that have passed away for one reason or another. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, I think now they can join as a Sartec. Okay. Uh, my time there generally had to be a certain trade f- first. So a lot of guys would maybe come from the army, mm-hmm. uh, some guys from the Navy, uh, where they were, you know, doing something else in the military. Right. And then uh, remustered to Sartex. So they'd have to go through a selection process and then pretty rigorous training. And, and then, of course, they're, you know, they're always, they're always training to be at their best, you know, when these guys are all in fantastic shape and you know, they'll move, they'll move mountains to, to do the job, right? I mean, they're just... They're the guys you want coming looking for you. That's awesome. So at 442 Squadron in Comox, it's a composite squadron consisting of both the Buffalo aircraft, uh, which is fixed wing, and then you guys in the Cormorant. Um, so talk to me about the synergy of working with those guys. Like, uh, how does how does that how does that come together? You mean working with the fixed wing guys, or working mm-hmm. with like the, with the training system? Yeah, with the fixed wing guys. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, having those guys um, as part of the squadron is fantastic. Uh, you know, I think anybody will tell you. You know, when you're out there doing whatever it is you're doing, it, it's so very reassuring to have uh, a top cover aircraft. And uh, you know, if nothing else, they're just up there as somebody to talk to. Mm-hmm. 
um, just you know that there's somebody there that's kind of watching and who's present to make sure that you're going to be okay and who can immediately respond if something should happen. And, um, you know, not to mention you get them out there. I've had them out helping uh, do fuel checks. Um, in general, you know, if you're out on a search, you would launch the fixed-wing aircraft first mm-hmm. um, because they can cover a large area quite quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, so you would get the fixed wing aircraft out there doing a cursory search. And then as you as you start to pare it down and, and have to look more into the weeds, if you will, that's when you start getting the slower, lower moving aircraft right. uh, out there. You know, of course, that's more time consuming and more, more labor intensive. So it uh, requires a lot more assets. And, and that's where you would move from, let's say, um, from the squadron concept where you're controlled by the rescue center to a a deployed concept where you have a dedicated uh, search master who has assigned all of these assets to go and execute this search to look for something. Hmm. Um, Maybe I should back that up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the squadron works for the rescue center, the operational side of the squadron works for the rescue center. Okay. So on a day-to-day task, uh, let, let's say we're taking off on a, on a training mission. We would contact the rescue center and tell them who we are and say, hey, we're taking off for a training trip and here's where we're off to and here's our plan. And uh, we would have to keep in contact with them while we're out and about. And uh, should something come up, they can get a hold of us and they'll send us on our way. Okay. And most times, the missions that we would be called out on, they, they're not a real a big search. They're you know, you know exactly where the patient is who needs to be picked up. You know the situation. It's just a matter of going there and getting them and, and taking them somewhere to mm-hmm. improve their situation. Okay. But sometimes, you know, you may end up in a situation where perhaps an aircraft has crashed or something, and uh, and then you've got to look for it. So the search, the search master, the controller at the rescue center, he'll assign the aircraft initially. Mm-hmm to go in and execute this. But as the search continues, the rescue center still has other obligations. They still have to maintain a watch. So they can't devote all of their time to executing this one mission. Mm-hmm. So that's when they'll assign that mission to the squadron itself. Okay. And the squadron will actually deploy. Uh, you know, there was a there was an occasion where we had to deploy to Kelowna during mm-hmm. my time there. Mm-hmm. And um, so... We were looking for a small aircraft that had crashed. And, uh, you know, they did their cursory search in the first couple of low-level searches, uh, which didn't prove to be very fruitful, so so they deployed. And uh, so you basically stand up a little squadron wherever it is that you think is, is going to be the best place. And, and in our case, the search area was near Kelowna. Mm-hmm. So we all deployed to Kelowna. You set up a little headquarters there. And it all it's pretty neat how it all plays out. Um, uh, because I was a, a flight commander, I became the detachment commander for that particular search. Mm-hmm. And then I worked hand in hand with the with the search master. Uh, so the search master sort of looked after all of the operational side of the thing and I was more administrative. Okay, but you know, I was involved with securing the location, getting telephone lines hooked up, making sure that we had internet access, all these little things. You know, making sure people were, you know, had places to stay and rental cars and what have you. I think we were there for about a week, and then we actually found what we were looking for. Um, 
but you know you have a you have a whole staff of people you know administrative staff that come out with you as well um and then you'll have your search master and assistant search masters and other helpers that can just guys that can help uh, put maps together you know for for the crews to give them a map and say here's your search area and off you go right um, so it's it's quite this uh quite this big song and dance it's it's uh it's really neat to see yeah like a mini air expeditionary unit absolutely yeah, yeah exactly yeah. yeah that's phenomenal and so you would in that instance would you typically uh have the buffalo and cormorant kind of um I guess it depends on the situation, but, um, you know, generally, yeah. 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 Generally you'd have both working in tandem. You might have a Herc come from Winnipeg or Trenton to, to help out. You might have, uh, an Aurora from Comox, uh, to come and help. Uh, you might have any number of Casera assets, you know, just, uh, civilian volunteers that bring their light aircraft out to come and help. You're orchestrating your own little, your own little air force, if you will. Yeah. And that actually speaks to the greater air force enterprise. Like, I mean, if you factor out the Casera side, um, having all of those other assets available to you as required, you know, like you said, uh, an Aurora is an anti-submarine warfare and ISR platform, but they can, they can certainly search too. If, if, sure need, if, if, yeah, sure if yeah. need be. Yeah, that's yeah, really. And, the, and as the search master, you the the powers that you're granted as a search master are, are pretty far reaching. Hmm. Um, you have you have the the powers of a you know maybe a squadron CO and even maybe a wing commander. Um, you know you have, and you can request the the you could request the world basically. Wow. Um, you may not get it, but. Uh, you know, if you decide that you, you need you need a uh, an Aurora because you want its ISR capability for to help with your search, you just ask. If they're granted, then they're yours to task. You, as a search master, assign a mission to that asset. Very it's cool. It's pretty neat. Yeah. No, that sounds awesome. Um, you've actually employed um, assets that way as a as a search master. Well, I've I've never acted as a search master myself. Oh, like okay. like I said. Um, my role as uh, as a detachment commander was more administrative. Gotcha. Um, so the search master was uh, sort of another office, if you will. Gotcha. Okay. Um, I'd be involved with just making sure that uh, people were flying in to fly the aircraft. Sure. Or, or that it, crews had places to stay and right. things like that. Right. Know? Gotcha. So, Troy, I think this is a good spot to pause for this episode. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and please join us for part two of our interview with Captain Troy Ma, where we discuss training, operational considerations in employing the aircraft, and an account of a rescue of an injured climber who was stuck on a ledge at nearly 10,000 feet. If you have any questions for Captain Ma or for us, please email us. Until then, thanks for tuning in, and have a great day, everyone. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.